of the Serious Universe, Season 30, Episode 17. Coming up on the show, we've got the secret man-eaters of the Solomon Islands, shape-shifting vampiric robots, and Chief Eddie Murphy and the Watch of Destiny. I'm your host, Benjamin Grundy. Joining me is Aaron Wright. Uh, did you say Chief Eddie Murphy? Chief Eddie Murphy. And the Watch of Destiny. Is this like a really <laughs> bad Indiana Jones film? Uh, it's a little bit like that. Oh, okay. You know Dean Harrison from Yowie Hunters Australia? Yeah, of course. Yeah. He got attacked by a yaoi, didn't he? Well, yes, he's known for being attacked by a yaoi, but he's been researching cryptozoological stuff in Australia and abroad oh, for, for decades. For yeah. a long time yeah. now, many, many years. And back in, I think it was 2006, he made a, a very little known adventure to the Solomon Islands. And he took a few of his mates with him, a few Australians with him. And they tried to find these so called giants. Of the island chain. As in like, like Bigfoot style creatures or yeah, something completely different? Yeah, there's reports of large, hairy, over eight foot tall yeah. beings, humanoids. And there's also reports of little midget type uh, yeah. hairy creatures in the region as well. And this was all following on from a, a strange tale, which I'm going to talk about today because Bibu on our site, mysteriousuniverse.org, I think it was last week he posted one of those classic Solomon Island UFO encounters. Yeah. I mean, the islands are just so well known for this high strangeness, weird activity. Uh, and what makes it even stranger is that uh, the Australian authorities have been sticking their noses into the Solomon Islands for a long time. And of course, conventionally, that's because, you know, we're a Pacific power and, you know, we're providing aid and assistance and that kind of stuff. But the other rumours is that we're sticking our military nose in there because there's things there that we want. We're testing aircraft. All that kind of wild speculation is out there. Well, it's funny. When we sent our forces in, I think it was 2003, mm -hmm. it was right after this individual named Marius Boyreon. Oh, yes. Which is a pseudonym. That's not his real name. But he had written an article that appeared in Nexus magazine and he had updated his own website with claims of UFOs. Yes. On the, the, the islands. If I recall correctly, wasn't he describing, was it uh, UFOs flying out of the water, shooting out of the water and back into the water? Was that what he was Yeah, he about? claims he had over 60 sightings mm. of craft and ended up tracing them back to an origin in the mountains, which I'll go into on this episode. But he said he claims the timing is very suspicious because he released this article in Nexus magazine and the same week, Australia sends 2,000 troops to the region. <laughs> yeah, it is interesting timing because I've, I've previously just briefly touched upon that book and I remember some of the, the crazies, craziness that was in there, uh, but I wasn't aware of the correlation between the deployment of Australian forces and uh, our military might. So there might be something to that. It's, it's a classic book and I've been trying to track down another copy for a while now because I, I know- We had our book burning. You covered it back in 2014 briefly mm. and yeah, we had our uh, annual book burning and I think it's lost now. <laughs> I tried to track down another physical copy, I think it was earlier this year, and it's so rare. It's like 200 bucks on Amazon or something. I, I, I paid for it, and eventually Amazon just said, um, sorry, we can't find it, and they just gave me a refund. Oh, wow. And so I thought, I, I really want to cover this, because again, Bibu spoke about it on our site, wrote about it on our site, and I ended up looking around for it this morning, and I found that Apple Books has a digital copy, and it's had a digital copy there the whole time. for years. Yeah. And that's the only place you can get it is from Apple Books. So I, I tracked it down, obviously, and that's what I'll be talking about today on the show and some of the weirdness that followed. So that book that I showed you on the screen, Solomon Islands Mysteries, Accounts of Giants and UFOs in the Solomon Islands by Marius Boyreon. Uh, 
again, that came out in 2003, 2004. But what I want to talk about today towards the end of the show is some of the follow-up investigations that yeah. were done. And that will include the story of Dean Harrison and the Yowie Hunters going to the country to try and figure out if anything written in this book was based on any fact at all, because it's okay. highly questionable. And there's an Australian man and a Polish man who did an expedition in 2011, which I'll talk about briefly. Okay, so more recently. Yeah. All right, well, I'm going to be talking about, ex. Um, well, essentially, I would say an expedition, but it's not entirely. So if you know the story, right? Nick Redfern, back in 2004, he went to Puerto Rico. He went to Puerto Rico to investigate reports of, of Chupacabra sightings. And essentially, if you recall, 1995 was when Chupacabra sightings really exploded across Puerto Rico. And, you know, there was, it ties in with this whole idea that many people were saying it's hysteria. It's like a group mass psychosis that's going on. No one's really encountering these things. Well, Nick was on the ground. Like Nick was on the ground less than a decade afterwards. He was speaking to people. We know some of those classic stories, which I won't go into in too great a detail. He got some great but interviews on that. He trip, did, he? yeah. And this is the thing. This is like, it, it's really interesting when you have these people that approach this stuff from a skeptical viewpoint, which is more than fine, right? However, they've never been to the island. They've never spoken to any eyewitnesses. You know, they don't, they've lost that understanding of sitting across from someone yeah. and letting that person explain their story, the nuances that they have, the subtleties of their, you know, their body language. These things, if you're a seasoned investigator like Nick Redfern is, you go, oh, hang on a second. This person seems to be telling the truth or this person had a genuine encounter. And not every single person is crazy. But I wanted to jump off this because I want to describe to you the experiences of the Sanchez family. And I've been hanging on to this for a little while. Is this the Chilean monkey man? Story? No, it does tie into that, though. It comes down ultimately to, and what we're going to get into in the plus extension, is that there has been uh, outbreaks of encounters with these vampiric-like beings. And they can be chupacabra style, but they can also be shapeshifters. They can also be robotic. There's all these kind of weird high strangeness factors to it. And the question is, well, what's really going on here? Is it that the military was experimenting with some type of, you know, genetic abomination that they released yes. upon Puerto Rico? Yes. No, that doesn't seem to be the case. Oh, why did you ask, why did you ask a rhetorical question what like that? It appears to be, what this appears to be is occult groups across the globe that are opening portals to allow these things through. Okay, so you're really bringing it down to a much more mundane explanation. Oh, it's not mundane when I get into it. Trust me. It's okay. Just, it's not like that at all. Yeah, you've that's been, coming up at the plus extension. You've been sitting on this uh, Chilean monkey man story for a while. Oh, it was good because I was able to branch out into other stuff today. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it came together quite nicely. All right, let's uh, go into Marius. Morius? Marius? Marius? <laughs> Marius Boray on Solomon Islands Mysteries. A classic from the early 2000s. So this guy, 35 years old, uh, Australian army veteran, and he starts off his story explaining that his heart's a bit broken. He's had too many lost loves in Australia. And he doesn't feel like he wants to live anymore. Oh, <laughs> so that's rather depressing. As a kind of a, a way out of this, he thinks, maybe I've just got to get out of Australia. You know, too many Sheilas have rubbed me the wrong way. And I've got to Literally. get out of here. So he tells this story at the start of the book where he ended up digging out the old um, family atlas. Mm -hmm. He's, I think it was his mother's. And he was opening it, flicking through the pages, just going, I've got to get out of here. I've got to go somewhere and, you know, change my – I need a – piece of fresh scenery to change my Why life. Why not just put a map on the wall and throw your army issued knife at it and see where yeah, it Yeah, that's the way to do it. Yeah. Well, he kind of did that and he was flicking through and he says he came across this page where the Solomon Islands had been circled 
And there was writing that his mother had written years earlier. And, and she wrote here, the Thousand Islands, exclamation point. He has no, no idea why she wrote that. He has no idea why it's circled. But his mother had passed away and he just felt like it was some kind of message it's from the other side, thing. some kind of omen, some kind of sign. So he's like, okay, sells everything, right? Packs up his life in Australia. He sells everything. Yeah, just puts everything in a shipping container. He's like, I'm going over there. No plan, no idea what he's going to do. He just heads to the Solomon Islands based on this circle in the the atlas. So immediately when he arrives, uh, he goes to, do I have the name of the island here? I don't. I can't remember. It'll it'll come up in the story, but that's one of the main islands. Obviously, there's multiple islands in the chain. But he goes to that island I've got on the screen there, that main island. And uh, immediately makes friends with this taxi driver named John uh, who takes him all around. He pays him like a hundred Solomon Island dollars a a week to just take him wherever he wants to go. And he details how he makes friends with this guy. He gets in with the locals and very quickly he uh, makes a lady friend. And this is Miriam who ends up becoming his first Solomon Island wife. So first implying (laughs) that there's been more than one? (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if it's more than one at a time. But uh, yeah, obviously more than one. He said, I had fallen in love with the country and the friendly nature of the people. He said, I found myself easily accepted and made many genuine friends and acquaintances more quickly than other white men could at the time because he had had this connection and he was welcomed into the family, you know, made good friends. He actually did really well. He went to the father first and figured out the local customs and, you know, brought the father a pig. A a pig. No, a pig. Not a a donkey. Oh, okay. And um, eventually settled down to this new life in the Solomon Islands. He would spend his time during the day riding his dirt bike across across the island. And the island here was Guadalcanal. That's the name. I had it later, Guadalcanal. And it's on one of these dirt bike rides. And he had this little Yamaha 250 he would cart around. He said it was the only dirt bike on the island. There's no motorcycles there. And uh, obviously- A Yamaha 250 be tiny? Oh, yeah, but you can still go, you can go pretty fast okay. on a 250. And he'd ride around this island and because it's the only bike there, he's obviously a celebrity. It's that white guy on the motocross bike. And through one of these trips, he made really good friends and he doesn't explain why, but really good friends with this local named Joseph. And Joseph features heavily in the story because it seems Joseph is his gateway into other tribal connections and regions of the island where normally, as a foreigner, you you wouldn't go yeah. or you wouldn't have access to. And so he eventually moves into a house with his wife, Miriam, that's pretty close to this friend, Joseph. And he explains how they hit it off. They used to go fishing, you know, drinking together, and they just became good friends. And... One night they were doing some night fishing and uh, Marius said he was sitting in the canoe and he's fishing, you know, doing normal fishing. And uh, Joseph was a spear fisher. So he was underneath doing his thing with his spear. And um, at one point in the night, Joseph had surfaced and he just starts yelling at Marius saying, it's the dragon snake, it's the dragon snake, like screaming at them, it's the dragon snake. And Marius is like, what? what are you talking about? And he starts pointing. He looks up in the sky and there's this light. There's a clear kind of bright saucer-shaped light hovering out over the water. And uh, he had actually told them about this thing 
a few nights earlier after a few drinks, he said there's this thing called the dragon snake. It's a creature that comes out of the mountains at night and flies around. Everyone in the whole area fears this dragon snake and they've done so for generations. They, they said it had piercing red eyes that killed people and had been responsible for people going missing. Mm. And here, Marius is like, I just came to get away from my old life and do some fishing and spend time with my new wife. Now I've got to deal with this dragon snake. What is going on? He just thought it was a silly tribal a legend. Yeah. Anyway, the next day he clearly sees this thing flying through the air, this luminous, again, luminous white object. And uh, he grabbed his binoculars. He says it was brilliantly lit. He watched it. They all watched it for a couple of minutes because his wife was with them. And Joseph said to them, look, just wait for about 10 minutes and it'll come back again because they had actually seen it submerge into the ocean. Yes, I recall. Mm. And when it rose out of the water, it was glowing twice as brightly as when it first went in, he said. Now, uh, Joseph and uh, a friend, Cece, that was with them said that if you didn't see it one night, you would see it the next. That's how often this thing came out. And he said they were right again. In fact, over a seven-month period, he said, I began to lose count of these sightings when they reached the 60 mark. So you could imagine by that point, you're like, oh, yeah, there's that light in the sky again. Yeah, you'd well, be sick of it. Yeah, you do. As I've, I've pointed out, you you know become, um, I guess, these things become mundane. That's right. And that these so-called dragon snakes, eventually he told his Solomon Island friends, he's like, the white men call these UFOs. And we believe they're flying saucers. They're like crafts. Some people think they're, they're alien craft. And again, in the next two weeks, he saw it three more times, always at night. And he always saw it going to that same place in the ocean. It would always submerge. It would disappear under the water in roughly the same spot. So he started to wonder, what's so interesting in the water there? Like, what's going on there? And it just turned out that the sea in front of the village where this object was going under was where during the war, Allied forces encountered a Japanese fleet and there was a great naval battle there. And it turned out being the biggest loss of Allied ships during any naval engagement during World War II. It was a huge disaster. So there's like a, a haunting attribute to it, like a spiritual disturbance or unrested souls. That's right. There's... Two major heavy cruisers that were lost. There was the Australian HMAS Canberra that was sunk and an American heavy cruiser, the USS Chicago. Now, he ends up going to the island's um, historical archives. And, you know, they've got a library there with all the, the old newspapers and all the yeah. old data. And he looks up the history of this naval battle and he discovers that, yeah, this object was submerging right where these ships had sunk not just in the general area of the battle, but precisely where they believed that they had gone down. And so uh, he continues with this research and keeps seeing these things in the sky. And it's the kind of thing where all the natives know the story. Everyone's seen the diamond snake or has, knows someone that's seen them. Anyway, months later, he's at this local christening. Again, his friend Joseph, central to this story, has just had his 10th child. And... Uh, he goes to this christening and he ends up meeting two chiefs from nearby tribes. And he describes in the book how he went up to them and, you know, made conversation, got friendly with them. And he just very casually brought up the topic of the dragon snake. And immediately these two tribal chiefs understood what he was talking about, knew a lot about it. 
uh, one of the chief's brothers had supposedly been killed by this object uh, when he was only a little boy, he said. Did they describe how that happened? No, it's uh, not detailed in the story, but he said they told me several stories of deaths and abductions, all of which confirmed to me that these UFOs were not friendly. He said, excusing myself, I went to the house and returned with my local map and asked them where the dragon snake's home was. He wanted to know where they were coming from. Now, these guys weren't really familiar with the map topography, but it took them a while to figure out where everything was situated and, you know, the layout of the map. But eventually they pointed to this unnamed mountain on the map. And uh, it's part of this Mount Papori, which do I have an image of it? I don't have an image of it there. But you can find it on Google Maps. It's got a slightly different name. It's got Popo in the name, but it is a real mountain range. Um, This unnamed mountain, eventually he called it Mount Dragon. But they pointed at this mountain and said there's a large waterfall high up in the mountains and beneath it, there's a lake. Inside that lake is where the dragon snake lives. That's what these chiefs tell him. Now, he said a further study of Mount Dragon revealed that there's a small lake in the mountain that is, in fact, the beginning of a river. And he said, as these guys had no idea of the topography of the map, it it seemed to lend credence to the idea that there was some tribal knowledge of where these things were coming from. So following this, this is just a few weeks later, at this stage, he's thinking, this is weird. I, I, I might act to actually have to investigate this, go up there and have a look. Anyway, early one morning, not long after, he says Joseph came to the house and immediately starts telling Marius about this fisherman he knew that was in hospital because the night before he had been attacked by the dragon snake. And Marius is like, let's go see him. Let's go to the hospital and see how he's doing. So they they go to the hospital. They arrive at this guy's bedside. Again, he's a local fisherman. He's covered in bandages, head to toe. And He's in so much pain, he's doped up with pethidine and all sorts of um, drugs. But they speak to him, Joseph speaks to him in the local language to find out what happened. And he said he'd been out fishing, it was 3am, he does all this night fishing, he's in his little fiberglass boat, and the dragon snake came flying along. And foolishly, this guy said he started flashing his torch at it, you know, clicking it on and off. And the thing stopped and, and immediately came straight for his boat. Now, he panicked, started his engine to try and get away, but he said it started following him in this zigzagging motion as he tried to get back to shore. Now, he says it fired some kind of light at him, only partially hitting him, and this is what burnt him. Now, uh, Marius said when they inspected the boat, this 19-foot fiberglass boat, the paint was curling like it had been heated up, it had been cooked. The source of heat had been applied. Uh, The fisherman said that when he drove his boat up to the beach and ran into the bush, this object followed him to where he was hiding behind a tree. He said he literally got down on his knees and started to pray to God, you know, in the clasped Mm. hands position, because most of the island is Christian. Uh, And with that, the object moved on. Interesting detail. You'd have to wonder why they're so aggressive, though. If he's just simply shining a torch at it, why would that you know, elicit such a response. Maybe the signal he flashed was like a middle finger (laughs) in alien language or something. Um, So he asked the ward's sister in charge about the burns and she said that although he had burns to most of his body, they were were less severe where he was wearing his shorts and his shirt 
So it was like some kind of extreme sunburn, uh, but she'd never seen anything like it. But and very it, consistent with other reports of people being hit by beams of light from UFOs. Well, I think this is what Bibu's article was about on the the the, the post. I, I don't have it in front of me here, but he posted this. Oh, no, I do have it here. Let me see if I can bring it up. It's the hostile UFOs of the Solomon Islands and their hidden subterranean bases. He writes about this specific case because it had been covered uh, in other investigations. And Bibu relates it to the famous Brazilian cases. Yes, the Chupas. The Chupas, which yep. were, in, in his uh, research, one of the only one of the only few cases where people have been attacked in a similar fashion. You know, I didn't think about it, but there is a stunning, um, you know, similarity between those reports because with the chupas, you know, I mean, some people in those cases describe them as flying red lights, others describe them as flying cubes, but they were shot by pencil thin red lasers, and in some circumstances, people had sunburn like effects as a result of being shot by those those lights, those lasers, whatever they are. But some people describe being shot, having no significant injuries, but then perishing, or people you know, would say that they perish days afterwards, almost being yeah. desiccated. And it's intriguing, those Brazilian cases, they describe red lights, yes. red lasers. Mm. And in the supposed folklore that Marius is being told about the dragon snake, the dragon snakes have red eyes. Yeah, the glittering red eyes. So there could be a connection there. So he ends up discussing this with his father-in-law, and you know, the Solomon Islands father-in-law, and, and tells him that, look, my people believe that these are craft and aliens pilot them. That's what people think in the West. Oh, I see. Right. Okay. So he's explaining that to him. But did he have a concept of aliens or craft? No, no, no. This is just a tribal thing. They're just like, this is some kind of spirit. It's some kind of demon. Stay away from it. It's dangerous. Well, at least they get that. Uh, but his father-in-law, like Marius describes to him grace. He's like, in the West, you know, we people claim they see these four foot tall beings. They've got big black eyes. They've got pale gray skin, you know, really spindly arms. Sneak into your bedroom at night. Yeah. And his father-in-law just goes, oh, we've got pictures of those. What? Yeah. And Marius is like, what are you talking about? And he's, his father-in-law says, if you go to the archives, there's a particular book that details some old um, tribal drawings or paintings, and they sound exactly what you're like, like what you're describing. And so- he goes to the Cultural Museum and he finds it. 15 pages, he says, of hand-drawn, detailed sketches of aliens, just like the ones we're all used to seeing on Whitley Strieber's books and on television. And how old is this book again? Uh, it must be like this, decades old. This is 2003. No, but this particular book of these drawings. I, like, this must be pretty old. Yeah. It's in the Cultural Museum. But he has no pictures of it. He's got no title uh, of the book. We can't look it up. Very frustrating. You would think that he would at least tell us what the book is called, uh, but he does no such thing. He says, there was only one other course of action left for me. I had to make an expedition to Mount Dragon to hunt down this UFO activity and Ooh. capture it on film. So the problem was he couldn't get his hands on a camera. He had like a Kodak camera you can take shots of during the day. not good enough though, is it? But he said he tried and tried and tried to get something that would be able to take footage at night, a video camera, but he just couldn't get it. There was nothing available on the island. Uh, he he thought, well, what am I, how am I going to ask anyone for it? He didn't have the funds to buy anything in Australia. And he said there re just really wasn't anything available back then that would get footage at night uh, that didn't cost like twenty, thirty thousand oh, yeah. dollars $30,000. I mean, I don't think people realise just how far cameras have come and they're still not, you know, that great for night shots. Yeah. So he starts planning the trip anyway. He said, 
It was actually an event that set this off. It was white, late one night. He was he said he was shucking coconuts or something at 3 a.m. I don't know why these guys are doing all this stuff at As 3 a.m. But he's with Joseph and they're probably drinking, you know, doing something with coconuts. And the dragon snake appeared. And he said it came right over their house. And he could. this was the first time he could actually see it. He said it was like a metallic sphere. Oh. Uh, and the entire region was just like halogen white, just lit up like you wouldn't believe and uh, he said his friend Joseph was like, oh, yeah, this happens occasionally. <laughs> he was fine with it. But Marius said, no, we've got to go up on that mountain and see what the hell is going on. This is ridiculous. So he and Joseph, they plan this trek. And as they're figuring out how to get up there, because it's a huge like five-day trek to get up there. This is impossible. There's no paths. There's pig tracks, but you've got to watch out for the pigs because they'll charge. Yeah, wild boar. There, it's it's so humid in this country that if you get cut, the wound is immediately going to get infected because mm. it just will not dry out. Mm. So you've got to be really careful. There's giant uh, constricting snakes. There's uh, leeches everywhere. It is, uh, to say it's inhospitable is a massive understatement. Is there highly venomous tree snakes and that kind of yeah, stuff Yeah, there's as well? dangerous snakes as well. So yeah. they're, they're carefully planning this, this expedition as they're planning, he sees this news report hit the local newspapers. And it's a story about two Catholic nuns who are native Solomon Islanders who have gone missing. And they were walking alone along this road a few kilometers east of where Marius lives and Joseph lives. And he said this kind of event was an uncommon occurrence within the Solomon Islands, especially when it comes to nuns. He said all the police investigations into their whereabouts had revealed nothing. They had no leads. These two women had just disappeared. Now, he said it was odd because where they had gone missing was the same place where they had made their first sighting of where the UFO had left the valley. And he said the other strange thing was that the northwest uh, Guadalcanal area was renowned for the dragon snake's reputation for stealing people. So he just throws that out there as this, well, did these women get taken by this thing? So anyway... He and Joseph, they're ready to go on this insane hike. It takes them three days to get anywhere close to the destination up the mountain. And they do it in the middle of monsoon season as well. So it's just a nightmare. It's pouring the whole time. They can't get any sleep. He says it's the hardest thing he's ever done. Well, you're trudging through thick vegetation and forest. Like there's no pathways there. No one's, you know, previously gone through there. It's dense. You just have to, have to hack through with a machete. Yeah. It's the only way to get through. Uh, anyway, on day three... They finally make it to the mountain range and he says they caught a glimpse of this waterfall with a lake underneath it. And he, he thought, surely this is the spot. This is what the tribal chiefs were talking about. And he says it was about half the size of a football field with reeds growing around its edge and, and a waterfall feeding it from above. And they basically sat there watching it. And it got till 9.45 p.m. They were trying to hide in the bushes just watching this place. When they finally saw it, they saw the light of this UFO start glowing in the water of the lake. And finally, it surfaced, moved to the edge of the lake and just started flying off. They said it headed down towards the mountain range at a 45 degree angle and continued out of sight. And he was like, it's true. They're right. This is where it comes from. And they'd been waiting for about two hours for it to return, but they didn't see it return they saw another light, he claims, come out from under this lake. 
And suddenly he realised there's two of these things. What is going on? And this one didn't head in the same direction. It actually came up out, headed over the mountain range and disappeared in the opposite direction. This was approximately 2.30 in the morning. Uh, eventually, a few hours later, as they're just watching, they saw the first, what well, they presume is the first light, come back, descend into the water. And they said you could see the glow of the lake until mm. finally it just faded out and things gone. And he starts to think, there's a freaking UFO base down there. There's a UFO base in the Solomon Islands, and I've found it. And that's why it's shooting at people, because it doesn't want to be found. Well, when he gets home, he's ecstatic, but then, and it's this huge, it takes him three days to get home. And he's so exhausted, he sleeps for two days. But eventually, it hits him. He's, he starts to realize, who do I tell? Who's going to believe me? This is so crazy. Like who's going to who's going to listen to something so insane? And so he's in this state of almost confusion. He's annoyed. Like he's made this momentous discovery, but he just knows that nothing can really happen because it's so outlandish. You know what's he going to do? Go to the go to the Australian news and try and get the story out? Well, they probably know about it. The authorities probably do at some some level. Finding the UFO base in this lake, his alleged story is the most reasonable thing that happens in this book. It is the most logical, um, down-to-earth, mundane event in this entire saga. And the book's over 300 pages. It's here where he totally shifts gear and just starts talking about something completely different. And he says, it was during this time, I was living in the northwest of Guadalcanal, having my first UFO experiences, that I first started to learn about the existence of giants on the island. I'm just like, what are you talking about, giants? I remember this book from years and years and years ago, but I forgot how nuts it is. It, it, yes, very much so. It really just jumps back and forth between bizarre things to even more bizarre things. He said, look, <laughs> as if the entire UFO situation wasn't mind-blowing enough, he said, now every person I came across, all the locals... They have stories about giants or they know someone who has a story or they've got some family legend about a giant. And what does he mean when he says giants? Well, he means Sasquatch. He's talking about Sasquatch because what these individuals claim that they've seen are what you would expect from North American descriptions of Sasquatch, Bigfoot, the Australian Yowie or whatever region's version you want to talk about. The ones that were described were over eight feet tall, some over 10 feet tall, long black, brown or reddish hair. When they want to have a good look at you, he said, they pull back the hair. Oh, they've got a fringe. Over their brows, like this cool emo fringe. Bulging red eyeballs, flat nose, wide gaped mouth and an unmistakable odour. Do they have a cone head as well? He doesn't mention that, Mm. but they stink. Right. And that's pretty consistent. That is, well, especially with Yowie reports. Yeah. And uh, there's three different species on the island, according to the legends and according to what the locals say. There's the large hairy type, which we would know from Sasquatch sightings. Yeah. Um, And then the smaller version, although bigger than a normal being, is like a wild man living in the jungle, Mm -hmm. he says. Uh, He says, I know it's weird, but it's so very real. If you only realized who is talking to you now, you'd pay attention. 
He says, inherently, when the indigenous Solomon Islanders see these smaller, giant, half-human people, they try and kill them. But he says, look, the whole thing's complex. There's some kind of blood feud that's been passed down through legends and... They have memories of going to war with these beings. Well, between the Solomon Islanders yeah. and these beings or between yeah. each species? Between all of them. It's just like, it's a free-for-all, like last hairy man standing. I guess standing. It's, it's a small, you know, island chain and you're fighting for resources. It all <laughs> makes sense. So I was doing some research today. I remember there was follow-up expeditions mm. and I found this Australian guy. His name's Warren. I can't find his surname. But he was there in 2011 and he actually tracked down Joseph. And ask him, asked him about these large, hairy, very, you know, very tall, eight foot tall or, or more entities. Did he go by himself or is he connected with Dean Harrison? He didn't go with Dean Harrison, but he went with this Polish guy. Right. Which I'll mention in a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, here's Joseph, and, and forgive the pigeon English, he's kind of, he's, his speech is actually quite good, but it's a little bit hard to understand. Sure. But we'll see what we can uh, pick up. Let's take a listen. Well, uh, describe is, uh, to describe them is, uh, to me, it's simply like he, the gorilla face and bodies and the type of uh, power pull type of the gorillas. And because they are very strong type of, uh, let's call them animals, something, or homoid or what, if so ever, they can carry even very heavy logs and break down the trees and all those things like that. Even the humans, they can carry humans with their bare hands and carry them to the mountains, those very steepy mountains. They're not so too intelligent, intelligent so, yeah, because uh, what actually happened to them is they only have two mindsets. One is to think of about what to eat. Another one is to have sex, to, have, to reproduce, that's all. <laughs> and then they're not really friendly. So th- and that's how, the way they think. In Guadalcanal, the giants really exist. And that it's really living in caves under the Mount Tatuve, which is the the uh, the, the topest uh, point here in the Golden Canal, the highest peak in the Golden Canal. So there, at the end, there he's saying they live in these caves and they're known to exist on this this tallest peak in the region. So but they're sex-craved conf- maniacs. Confirmed, he says they are idiots, which well, we, we know, know that. Through, yeah, we do know that. Uh, yeah. And all they think about is sex, sex, food, and that's it. That's their two thought patterns. They're morons. I'm starting to believe the story. Yeah. It's lining up with all our other research. Bigfoot is a moron. A bumbling moron. And he's pretty horny, as we've seen, especially the Australian ones. That's true. Yep. We've Funny seen stories this. of people being taken and, and you know, having things happen. So, yeah, they also believe that they have this underground cave system and it's connected through all the islands. Do we know that though? Is there any actual reports? No, no. What I'm saying is, like, surely there'd be splunkers and, you know, topographical, you know, map creators. Is it actually confirmed that there are significant amounts of caves there? Didn't Jane Goodall go there and discover the caves in the 1980s, and it was covered up by the CIA? I have no idea. I highly doubt that. <laughs> well, the only reason why I ask, right, is because there's the same um, stories about Puerto Rico. Right. Puerto Rico is said to have all of these caves that are interconnected into other locations. And and yeah. some people say, well, yeah, there are caves, but the extent of them has probably been a little bit, you know, overemphasized. Well, maybe there's a Solomon Island Bigfoot cave that connects by a tube train <laughs> to Washington, D.C., and the head of the Bigfoot cave tribe just goes to talk to the president of the United States every week. Or Bill Clinton visits every now and again. <laughs> to, to the Solomon Islands. Well, yeah, that actually comes up later in the show. Um, so here, I mean, the reason Marius believes this is because 
it's considered common knowledge, right? Okay. Well, that's kind of what I was asking. And yeah, that's his argument that everyone kind of understands this. And obviously that's not evidence of anything. Like you can have... No, it's a cultural belief. You can have a legend uh, appear and be spread over time that might not have roots in any truth at all. But often these legends do have a kernel of truth to them. They are based on something. And uh, to add to Marius's uh, belief in this, he tells this personal story he had years ago. This was before he moved to the Solomon Islands. He was a, a helicopter pilot working in Australia, and he got hired for this job with an American fishing fleet. And uh, he had to fly the helicopters and get them spare parts and do something with whatever they were doing. And they were actually working in the Solomon Islands. And he said he was paid really well, but the headquarters were on the island, which he he lives in the story, uh, Guadalcanal. And he says at lunchtimes on his break, he would go to this local you know drinking house. And he said the the premier of the island and the um, the finance minister, the two prominent politicians, they would always be there having beers and he would have drinks with them. And he, he tells this story about how the prime minister, or the, sorry, the premier, told him that a few years earlier, they had gone to this survey area for a proposed gold mine. There was a foreign company trying to get mining rights. And so they they jumped in their Toyota Hilux and they went up this mountain path to try and survey the site. And they said it had been raining, so it was quite um, muddy and slippery, and they ended up getting bogged. They, they got stuck. And they ended up getting out of their truck. They go down the road and they thought, we, we need help to get our truck out. So they went to a local village and they got about 30 young boys and young men to come and help them um, get, dig the truck out. And they said they'd been away from the truck for about half an hour but when they got back in the distance before they made it to the truck, they could see two huge giants standing next to the truck. Mm-hmm. And they all freaked out. Like all the locals started screaming and ran away. And uh, this premier said he and uh, his buddy just kind of stood there watching. And one of these big hairy giants just in one easy lift just picked up the truck, picked up the front of the truck and just uh-huh. moved it onto the road. It was like, there you go. <laughs> so they're not obviously that hostile. Yeah, maybe they, yeah, I don't know. Maybe they thought there was food in there or yeah, they could have sex prob- with it. <laughs> it's two things they're always thinking. <laughs> that's exactly what happened. Um, so that was, you know, a really kind of, he said this guy was dead serious. You know, he he said it with a straight face. He wasn't laughing at all. And he believed this guy's story. And he said when they went and investigated, because these things eventually fled, he said there were just huge footprints there, like mm. three to four feet long. And these things would have been... I mean, the strides were three or four feet long? No, the actual length. <laughs> the length. Three that, or that four doesn't feet make long? Sense. That doesn't make sense. It must be wrong. Um, do I have... Yeah, he says three to four feet footprints. <laughs> what? <laughs> That can't be right. That must be a miscalculation because the size, like the absolute size of them would be just huge. But he said their height was over 15 feet. So what's that? 15, that's about four and a half meters. That does kind of match up. Yeah, that does, yeah. Like if you're 15 feet tall. If you're six foot tall and basically let's say you're, you know, size 12, that's... Yeah. Nearly. Yeah. They got big feet. Okay, they're huge. 15 foot tall giants. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Probably why they're so sex crazed. Yeah, he said the Guadalcanal people and many other Solomon Islanders, Islanders also know the story of Mango. Who's Mango? So Mango was a, a local who passed away in the year 2000. 
Uh, she had been kidnapped by the giants, he said, 50 years ago and had essentially vanished for 25 years. And people had given up hope of finding her again. They're like, the, the giants have taken her. Um, she was found. She was found pregnant, hysterically frothing at the mouth in a garden in the northeastern coast of Guadalcanal. A giant had taken her as his wife or sex toy is a better description. Uh, understandably, he said she was mentally unstable for the remainder of her life, but through her pregnancy, she gave birth to a half-caste boy. The bastard boy lived to the age of five, but was unfortunately killed by one of her brothers who slaughtered him. Does it describe what he looked like? I mean, they're saying half-caste, but was he hairy? Pretty was he hairy. large? Okay. Large and hairy. And there's more than one of these stories of these supposed um, descendants of these mixed race individuals. It sounds like, um, is it Zara? Was yeah. it the Russian report? Yeah, the old Russian one. Very similar. Yeah, she was just African. <laughs> That's right. The problem with that, though, is like that actually, um, like the species, like they'd be too different to be able to, to have a child. Well, that's what he says. He's like, obviously, humans and chimpanzees yeah. can't mate. Even though we're so closely genetically related, we're, we're two different species. You can't mate. But if you listen to a, a lot of, you know, credible or not, close-up Sasquatch accounts, they claim they look more human than ape. Yes, they you do. Know, so yeah. many reports, the eyewitnesses say, you know, Absolute, it's weird. a human-like face. He looked like a man. Mm. He was just covered in hair. And so the, the idea that they're, they're too distant doesn't really check out if you compare it with the, the well, reports. I guess, I mean, you get ligers and you get donkeys. So, no, mules, I'm sorry. So, and you get large, hairy, half Bigfoot <laughs> freaks. Maybe. Um, and just like American, Native American folklore, there's all these historical accounts on the island of these giants being murderous cannibals. Mm. They would eat the uh, the locals. There are numerous handed down traditional stories, he says, in which the giants would storm villages, grabbing people, ripping off limbs and eating them right there and then while everyone ran in absolute terror. Also, he said there are many stories about what the Solomon Islander people called the killer giants who would persistently return to their villages to make a meal out of them. Sometimes during these village attacks, there were groups of these killer giants and within this book is recorded the well-known Guadalcanal traditional story of the five killer giant brothers. And apparently this is everyone knows this story, which for the sake of time, I, I'm not going to include uh, in the show today, but I'll link to it in the show notes if you want to read it. It's just like a very kind of old school fantasy. Yeah, I think I know this story off the top of my head. I think it was along the lines of, uh, it's very rudimentary, was that uh, they were murderous. They were what they were... Um, but, like what you were saying, they would raid, uh, and there was five of them, obviously, and that they would go through and they were just uh, almost invincible. Like that, from what I recall, they were almost invincible mm. and they couldn't be stopped. And it was they were ravenous. Like the the absolute hatred that came from them was above anything else. That's why they became legendary. Well, whenever we've done s stories on the show, whenever we've done entire episodes dedicated to the topic of giants, you always run into this folklore wherever it is in the world, whether it's in the Americas. That they're cannibalistic, like, you know, the, the Middle East or Europe. That they they encountered these cannibals. They they were man eaters, mm. and they were vicious. And that was this struggle against these incredibly violent, almost they always describe them as mad. Yes, yeah. Simple thinking. Oh, I'm on the side of the islanders. Wipe them out. You know, there's this generational bloodlust. Like, yep, I'm there now. Yeah, and uh, even the former prime minister Ezekiel Alabua, 
he uh, claims he's personally seen a giant's burial cave that his father took him to when he was a young child. He said within that cave, he was shown a perfect 15-foot giant skeleton. Um, now, he says, the the author, Marius, says he never got to see it, obviously. But when I was looking around today for follow-up investigations, I actually found that uh, this Polish adventurer I mentioned earlier in the show, his name's Wojtek uh, Babilovich. He went there in 2011. He actually did some crowdfunding, got together some funds to go to the island and he found one of these graves. Now, it's not the 15-foot claimed skeleton that the uh, prime minister said he saw as a child, but it's still pretty impressive. Let's take a listen. We are now in the village called Kakara. Uh, and this is apparently the grave of a giant person. It's more than seven meters tall, long. Seven meters? of the same person, which is more than three meters across. So I just... He says there that's the head, three meters across. <laughs> I don't know. We have no way of telling. We would have to take the bones to make sure. But of course, taking the bones out is impossible. It's out of the question. So forgive my ignorance here, but what we're looking at, is that just a stone ring that's been placed around it's, or are they suggesting that that's bone? It's just a plot of ground. It, it's There's really nothing there to look at. But he says that, I mean, Marius claims that he saw this site and it was marked out as untouchable, as a taboo, you can't go there, but it was clearly marked out as this large grave site. Mm -hmm. But when uh, the Polish guy went there, and he spoke to the elders there. They said, oh, it's no longer a taboo. Um, and he he ended up, I think when Marius was there, or was this later? One of the individuals went there and tried to get the bones. It might have actually been this Polish guy. And yeah, they said to him, look, it's not a taboo anymore. You know, there's a church here. Well, he said, why don't you go and get permission from the chief and we'll do an excavation. We'll dig it up. And they came back to him and it took like five days of negotiations. And eventually they said to him, oh, we, we can't do it because we're afraid of the giant's spirit. So it was no longer a taboo, but they still had still the belief fearful. that it was it was a real thing and they didn't want to mess with it. Or the other possibility is, is that they've kind of been modernized and have come to their you know modern senses, I suppose, and have gone, oh, we've got a good story going here, but we'd better not destroy that story. Yeah, and the Polish guy speculated on that as well, but he said it's not a it's not a destination that anyone knows because of that fact, because that there's a so-called giant's grave there. He said the only reason he knew about it is because it's mentioned in this this book. Right. I mean, I'm not going so far as to suggest that they were using it or exploiting it in any way, but perhaps because it is, you know, like this legend, it's a story, yeah. and now that they've realized that it's it's not real, they still don't want to desecrate that story. Yeah. That's I mean, that's one way of thinking about it. Well, from here it just goes Bonkers. Oh, like it hasn't already? It just gets completely bonkers. He says, Over the years, I've been receiving astonishing reports from credible people who live in different sections near the centre of the island of Guadalcanal. Credible people, he says, have been telling me that sometimes at dusk, dawn, or during the night, they are seeing dozens of a particular species of creature flying in a group formation over the jungle. And I'm like, what's? Are we going to get stories of pterodactyls? That's exactly the word that was in my flying mind. Flying dinosaurs. Is it's this pterodactyls, isn't the it? The ropens. What is going on? Giant bats. He says they all describe the same thing that flies along above the jungle. 
It's a man-like creature with a long tail and a red glow on its back. And they hear a rolling hum from the group as it flies overhead. (laughs) A rolling hum? Yeah, like a UFO kind of sound. That's inconsistent with any other humanoid flying humanoid I think we've ever covered. Well, there are those reports of these flying flying men. There are. Very sporadic, very rare. But not a red back. And even the sound being associated, but that suggests to me that that is that like some type of propulsion device and the noise they're hearing is as a result of that propulsion. Some kind of cool. Yeah, like a, like a, yeah, a, I don't even know what the technology would be. I can't even begin to think. He says, many have told me of seeing hundreds of them at a time. They have also been seen at dawn individually, randomly flying above the fog of the mountain valleys in the interior. They have been regularly spotted in large groups going out to sea and coming back to the coast of central South Guadalcanal. On occasion, he says they've been seen in the jungle and they are described as such. They look like strong homo sapien men with greenish-brown scaly skin, a long tail like a crocodile, and some uh, weird apparel they wear. They walk upright, he says. So hang on, is he describing flying reptilians? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) flying squadrons of flying reptilians. Now, it gets even more unbelievable from here. He says, the Japanese war memorial of the Solomon Islands, it's on Mount Austin and um, still there today, apparently got vandalized when there was strife in the country back in 2008. Oh, sorry, a little bit before that. Um, But it's been restored. It was restored in 2011. There's, There's one YouTube video I found today of a woman checking it out. But... Um, he said when when he was writing this book, there was a Japanese sculptor who created a bronze statue at this war memorial. Now, there's a bit of history of Japan in the region. Obviously, they were there during World War II. And uh, Marius writes that it was strange that when the Allies came to the island, the Japanese had already retreated. And he, he tries to make the claim that this was out of the ordinary because normally they dug themselves in and they were ready for a fight to the last man. Mm. But for some reason on the Solomon Islands, the Japanese withdrew early. So is he um, suggesting perhaps that something scared them away? Well, think about it. You've got flying, reptiles, flying for UFOs, example. you've got man-eating giant hairy humanoids, and now you've got floating squadrons of reptilians. <laughs> you can just imagine that is a new one. I've never heard that before. Some Japanese squad like, oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty sure they would get out of there. Nani! If any of that was true. Um, so he does suggest this, that that's why they fled, because they encountered these beings. But this sculpture that was uh, allegedly at this war memorial, he says it looks strange. It's a bronze statue. It's a half-human man with scales who is holding a ray gun-style object that is attached to the end of a tail. He says this futuristic Star Trek type reptilian half human has a determined look on his face. And he basically says he's holding the ray gun in one direction and pointing in the other. And so I, I obviously I have to look this up. Hang on, did you say that this is at the Japanese War Memorial? <laughs> yeah, well, I found the statue, right? And this is actually in the background of that YouTube video I, I, I saw today. This is what it actually looks like. It's a fisherman holding a net. It's it's not. It's not scales at all. No. Um, but he does say in the book that the this one that's here now mm. isn't the original statue. Oh, that's a good call. He said they replaced it in 1999. The original one was like a Star Trek-style alien. But, 
<laughs> why? Think about it, right? Why would an artist do that? Why like, would why? the Japanese artist do that? Yeah. Because he kept hearing stories of his fellow countrymen being eaten alive by rept- flying reptilians. <laughs> and in 1999, they were like, oh, we better cover this up. So then they put this very rudimentary fisherman statue there to throw everyone off the case. So this is the first, like, obviously all of this has been insane, but this is the point where I'm like, yeah. Um, I, I mean, how much of this, I mean, obviously when he's talking about folklore and things other people have said, you can go, well, well there's no folklore. way for us to, to tell if any of that's true. Mm. But when it's things he's saying specifically that he's seen and done, you know, like anything, like you... At the start, you take the author for his word. Yeah, of course. In order to go along with the story. Yeah. But it's details like this where you start going... Well, so surely there's ways you might not have been able to do it today, but surely there's ways that people can validate whether or not that statue was installed in 1999. I couldn't find a thing. Okay. I found a blog post writing about it and they basically said, look, we've seen the statue and it's this one you can see on the screen. It's a fisherman holding a net. But they don't mention what he says in the book that it, it was changed... And there was uh, a lot of well, yeah, changes over strife the time. and, you know, political upheavals. I did find reports of the original statue being stolen going back to the 90s. Okay. So there is some credence to the story, but not a lot. And see, it could actually could be something that's just more simple. I mean, I think initially I jumped to, well, this is some type of cover-up and, you know, they deliberately replaced it because... But no, you're right. It, it just simply could have been stolen. They got a new artist in and the new artist had a new, you know, inspiration and that's why they put yeah. it there. And there's other things that, in terms of the folklore, if they're true, are a little bit more intriguing. Like apparently the name for the the Solomon Islander name for these huge giants is the Moo Moo people. And then, he, of course, he links this to James Churchwood and the the island of Lemuria, the, the whole Moo uh, hypothesis, this lost civilization. But then there's also midgets on the island. There's like hairy midgets as well. And he says, I almost forgot to tell you, he says the Makira which is in the east of Guadalcanal, they have a small, super strong, dwarf-like midget creature, which I forgot to mention could be found on the what? island also. In light of what I've been looking into recently, I'm actually more inclined to believe that, especially with these you know, stories of there being pygmies in Australia that were you know, forced out by the Aboriginal people as they came down, so the pygmies scattered to the islands. Right, and there was that world-renowned scientist who has spent years studying the people of Flores yes. who wrote a book, uh, was it uh, nearly two years ago now, where he detailed eyewitness accounts of these hairy little people that are still seen today on the island of the islands of Flores, yep. uh, where that, you know, the, the hobbit was found, yep. the, the remains of the hobbit. So, I mean, it would make sense if they had moved into the Solomon Islands. Yeah, well, this is what he does allude to. Uh, and he also saw this front page news. This was back in 1991. And again, in 1996, there was uh, two occasions where there was front page stories of one of these reddish haired, four foot tall Choa Choa entities, which they're called, um, being paraded in the streets of some village. Really? <laughs> he claims that there's a 1996 front page article that included a picture, which of course he doesn't have, um, one of these creatures wandered out of the jungle in a village near uh, Gold Ridge and kind of like a chimpanzee at the circus, they put in, like a little pair of shorts on him and like put a little hat on him and paraded him around the the streets of the village and everyone Poor came thing out. Was probably terrified. And was cheering and threw him some food. Could it be an orangutan? Could there just be a mistaken, you know, identity? Maybe somehow an orangutan was on the island? 
I don't know if there's there's, there's not, not on apes there's on not island. apes on Solomon Islands, but, but you wouldn't you probably wouldn't see a pet there because they don't have the the money. No, because it would be an expensive exotic. Well, thing. the only other possibility I'm just thinking about the um, the war, and if because you know there used to be um, I don't know what you call them battalions. That's probably too big, but there'd be units that would you know capture wild animals, and normally it would be you know tigers or cougars or something like that, yeah, yeah. and use them as um, you know mascots. But there are rumors that they got apes as well. Oh, okay. So it's like, did they grab something from some Japanese monkey or something? (laughs) Well, if the Japanese troops were there, did they have a monkey? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It sounds like it's bigger than that, though. But yeah, I mean, all these, obviously, we're just spitballing. Well, he does link this to the Australian Aboriginals. You know, you were mentioning the pygmies and some of the, the little hairy people that are mentioned here. Uh, there's the Jungaree man he writes about in the book, which I couldn't I think this is a misspelling of the Junjadi man, which is a well-known Australian, not well-known, but it's an Australian Aboriginal, people would say mythical creature, but it's essentially a little hairy midget. And I tried to do a um, a Google image search for the Junjadi today, and uh, that's all I could find. This is this this thing came up. <laughs> so that's <laughs> obviously wrong. Is that a North... <laughs> So North Korean, <laughs> a South Korean pop singer. I think there's a K-pop star who right. goes by the name Junja D. There you go. <laughs> so I don't think that's what I was looking for. But the, I, I went searching a little bit more and I found this, which apparently is a photo, the only known image of a Junja D taken in Australia. It's a nighttime photo, definitely not a Labradoodle <laughs> leaning up against a tree. <laughs> that's exactly what it is. Definitely not a Labradoodle. Yeah, I was trying, I'm like, that <laughs> looks kind of like a fluffy dog. Looks like your old dog. Yeah, it does. Uh, So, yeah, I mean, it just gets mad from here. So, he says there's also a lost civilization. Uh, And he talks about these interlocking stone platforms that are deep in the jungle, um, chiseled stone walls. He says there's strange uh, hieroglyphic writing that's on some of this. And, of course, there's, you know, etchings, photographs of these things. There's nothing. Uh, he does, like, what he does is he gives uh, GPS coordinates and literally says, look, I don't have time or the money to investigate this. If anyone can, make sure you take a helicopter. Then he just links to the GPS coordinates. So if you put the GPS coordinates in Google Maps, this is what you get. What, what is that? Is that and there there is site? There is a settlement there. Like, there is... And, and oh, they're buildings. I can't zoom out because this is a screenshot, but this is in the middle of nowhere. And there is buildings there. And it does look like, I don't know if you can see that on the screen, but it does almost look like foundations of rock it does. of some sort. Yeah. Mm. Down here, we've got just houses. Yep. Shacks, really. And there's some later images on Google Maps. This is on Apple Maps that show there's, they've done farming. So I don't know if these plots up here are farms. But up that, on that hill, I mean, that might be some type of subsidence or um, like a landslide. But then again, yeah, is it like revealing stone foundations or something? Well, all I know is that the Jews are involved. What? Because <laughs> he what said, he says in the early nineties, somehow the ones guarding the secret place got the notion this might have some Christian significance to it. Like this is some kind of ancient Christian site. I don't I don't know how you would make that connection. Even the most obscure theories about Jesus traveling to Japan. India or Japan have no connection with the Solomon Islands, but they claim this this Christianity connected somehow. Um 
Yeah, apparently a group from Israel contacted these guys and actually he claims that the buildings I just showed you on that satellite image were built by investigators from Israel <laughs> who tried to investigate the site and its connections to Christianity. I'm just like, why? okay, why would Jews be interested in an ancient Christian site? But what are you talking? This sounds insane. Yeah, how did we? Even, did he just kind of ease into this? So it was no, just, just like drop, bam, just drops it in. And he says, "Oh, they didn't. They said it had nothing to do with Christianity, and they left." And he's like, "Who were these guys?" <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, and these are attributed to the Ramo people. These ancient structures, like these stone monuments, and it's called Ramo writing. He says this. These hieroglyphics that are on these stone structures. Who are these people? Well, what's interesting, he says Ramo, the term today in the Malaitan language, the people of the island, it means someone that's a superior warrior. Okay. But he says the term has a double meaning. It also means someone, It's it translates to a man who eats man. Oh, the cannibals. So it ties in with the whole cannibal idea, the language matches. Well, it also yeah is consistent with being great warriors because they were so large. Mm. And a lot of the book is just really local legends he's heard, things that have been passed down for generations. The stories going back hundreds of years. Yeah. The the tribal people don't look at them look at them as mythologies. They look at them as real events that happened. Uh, but he does have more recent ones. He actually interviewed an individual who just a few years prior said when he was 16, he was a teenager at the time when uh, Marius spoke to him, but he said when he was 16 in 1998, uh, he went to a different part of the island to stay with relatives and his parents probably just wanted him out of their hair for a while and he stayed with them for about six months. And he tells a story of how he made friends with the other local teenagers and their favourite thing to do was go hunting for pigs during the day. And the parents that he was staying with, his uncle and auntie, were like, that's fine, but there's this part of the forest you have to stay out of and under no circumstances are you to cross this particular river because there's a giant that lives there and people have gone missing there. Do not go there. And so this kid told Marius the story of how one day he and his buddies, there's like five of them, all the same age, just 16, they go out looking for pigs and they end up not thinking, like across one of these streams and they eventually come to these fruit trees that they haven't seen before. And, you know, these boys, they know the vegetables, the native fruits, the native trees, and they've never seen anything like this. It's a strange foreign fruit. And they keep following these fruit trees, and it almost looks like it's they're being looked after, like they're being curated in a way. They're in a nice, neat row, and they look too, they don't look wild. So they keep going, and two of the boys stay back because they're kind of wary. And he says three of them continue, and they end up coming to this grass hut in a little clearing in the jungle. Just normal size? Well, they said it was totally different to any kind of hut you would see on the Solomon Islands. It was this weird dome shape. It used different kind of like rubber leaves for the the roof, which they like no one ever uses. Yeah. And they and then they started to remember the warning from their parents of don't go to this region. They started to realize this might be the giant's house. Like <laughs> what the hell's going on? So they hide in the jungle. And he said they they waited for hours, like a good one or two hours, just watching to see if it would either leave or something would come and enter the hut. And eventually nothing arrived. So one of the eldest boys was like, there's obviously nothing there. I'm just going to go take a look. And so he kind of creeps up to this hut. He pulls back the cloth. He looks inside 
and there's like an eight foot tall hairy man sitting down by this little fire. <laughs> and he says, he, this thing immediately is like, <gasps> turns around and looks at him. The boy starts screaming and sprints. They all start sprinting back to where they came from. And this hairy man starts bounding after them. It eventually gets to the point where it it easily gets to them, like it easily catches up with them back at those fruit trees and it grabs the slowest one and just holds it in its hand, like in a single grip. It's just holding this kid by the waist, they said, and he cannot move. Now they're all terrified. All the other boys kind of race away, but stop because they're worried about their friend, of course, obviously. Yeah. And they said they're screaming. This thing just goes and like drops the boy on the ground and walks away. And he said the way this kid told it, like he was still terrified telling the story. And he said it could have just crushed him, but it decided to let him go. Um, And they said they never went back. They just never went back. It was so terrifying. So there's cool stories like that where it's supposedly a, you know, first person account. Um, And there's another one of a, a slightly older one. It's a story of this old hermit. This is, he says, about 100 years ago. And this guy had a little hut. He liked to stay away from the other villages for whatever reason. He was a bit eccentric. And he had this hut away from the main village. And he built it on stilts and he used to go fishing in the local river. And it was a good place to him for him to fish because no one else would go there. And no one else would go there because it was full of crocs. Yeah, right. Saltwater crocodiles. I was, I was looking at that earlier. Like, what's the? Is I was looking to see if there's been any history of apes in the island, and there hasn't. But what there is is a huge number of dangerous crocodiles. Apparently, there's so many crocs. Yeah. in Solomon Islands, um, and they actually, he said in the 90s, they signed some UNESCO agreement to have the crocodiles as a protected species. And he's like, it's the dumbest thing they ever did because. They're not dwindling numbers. They're just everywhere and you can't kill them. It's against the law to do anything. So anyway, this old hermit, it's late one night and he's woken up by this horrible scream. It sounds like a man being tortured and then the screams fade away to nothing. And he tries to go back to sleep, but he's like, I've got to go and investigate. That was crazy. And so he goes out and he eventually gets to the river and there's this hairy giant man, like 10 feet tall, completely unconscious, bleeding everywhere. And uh, clearly he's been attacked by a crocodile and he's, you know, his legs bleeding, there's blood pooling from his stomach. So this old man at first, he's like, I've got to get out of here. This is crazy. But then he, he's conscious. He, he feels like I've got to help this guy. And he ends up getting the local palm leaves and trying to tend to his wounds, but realizes he's going to need help. So he goes back to the village and he actually says to the elders and the chief, I found a large man and he needs our help. And there's this huge debate, like some people want to kill him right there. Other people are saying, we've got to help him. If we kill him, the giant tribe will kill us. And so they end up pulling him back to the village. And it's this really detailed story about how he careful. it's like, like uh, dances with wolves or something where he's slowly being recuperated. Like he drips water into the Bigfoot's mouth. Oh, he's <laughs> diet fossy. He gives him like a little bit of peanut butter on a chopstick and he's like, oh, <laughs> Yeah, it really is like that, where he's just tending him back to health. Um, and eventually, the the large, hairy giant regains consciousness. And he, he can speak in the local language. And he's like, why you help me, old man? And the old man says, you know, I had to help you. I couldn't leave you there. And then he passes out again. Anyway, it's a long story. He eventually regains his strength. And when And there's all these debates in the village about, should we keep him alive or should we kill him now? What should we do? And eventually, it's like the old man becomes his protector. 
and doesn't let anyone come near him. And eventually this this hairy giant regains his strength and he's still got a bit of a limp, but he can move around. And he says to the old man, he says, you come with me, come to my village. That's all he says. And the old man's like, um, won't your people kill me and eat me? He's like, no, I tell them you my friend, you tribe friend, you come. And he's like, all right. <laughs> I so, mean, I'm intrigued to know where he learned English, but... Well, they're not the, speaking the, the, English. Well, sorry, the local language. They're speaking Guadalajara, uh, whatever. But how it is. do they speak the local language? I don't know. <laughs> do, do they like hang around and watch? Oh, I guess they have. A He's got a universal before. translator. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> okay. Why are you asking these stupid logical questions? So he um he follows this giant up the mountain, and it's this huge trek. It takes like three days to trek up this mountain. And he said even though the giant was ill of health and he had this huge limp, he could barely keep up with him. Like he was, his strides were huge. But eventually they made it to this village in this huge cave. And he said he walked into this clearing and there's just like maybe 15 or 20 of these large hairy giants. There's smaller younglings. Like it's obviously a this community. is a real community. And they all come out and they're, they're, they're kind of shocked to see him. And he overhears this giant tell the tribe that this man saved me. He protected me and he's now my my friend and he's the friend of the tribe. And it says the chief comes. It's a great story. Like the chief comes out, they hold a feast for this old man and he's like the- Is it another human? Well, they give it- No, no. <laughs> another human. <laughs> uh, no. And it'd be rude not to partake. So Yeah, when in Rome. Well, you know, he he's just treated like a hero by this tribe. For three days, they have this massive celebration. And as he leaves, he's given like this box with these um, special stones as a reward. And this, the chief of this Bigfoot giant tribe says, you will always be remembered as um, a friend of our tribe. And we know your people and we will protect them. And he basically, he's told if any other humans try and attack your tribe if you get into a war we will come to your aid so this old man's like awesome i've got this defense pact with this <laughs> tribe of hairy giants and there's a kind of a little epilogue to the story because years later he returns to his tribe he hands over these strange stones and eventually um he has an encounter years later where he's out in the forest and he's hunting for nuts or something and he comes across another one of these hairy giants and he's immediately scared because he knows, like, they kill you and eat you. Um, and he's up in this tree and this giant says to him, cut me down some nuts. And he's like, I'm not coming down because if I cut down this branch, then I'm going to fall and you're going to eat me. And the giant says, I'm not going to eat you. I know who you are. You're a friend of that other tribe. And he mentions the tribe's name. And he says, we know about you. We all know about you. We will never hurt you. And so this guy, through this act of compassion, becomes like <laughs> special it, access Bigfoot man on the Solomon Yeah, Isles. but it's also like it's a good, uh, like one of those feel-good moral stories. It's right? a great story. Like helping your enemy and then you yeah. get rewarded for it. Uh, and then the next story is about a woman who was kidnapped as a sex slave. Well, they are, they are degenerates and, when it comes to that. And this is a modern story. And he actually saw this in a newspaper. There's a story about this woman who went missing for five years, had been given up for dead. When you say modern, do you mean 70s, 80s? Well, he went and interviewed her. Oh. Like okay. he saw the headline that she had been returned and was like, okay, I've got to go and talk to her. And so he tracks down the um, the chief. He goes to their village 
And the chief tells him that a group of giants had come down from the mountains and stolen her five years earlier. Um, They took her back to the mountains. They imprisoned her in a wooden cage and they kept her for a long time. During those five years, she'd been moved around to a few other places and they fed her scraps and just treated treated her like a pet or a sex object. And he goes and interviews her. And it's, it's a horrible story because he said she just looked dead in her eyes. Like she looked done. He, he said she had the most dead look in her eyes. It was actually terrifying to look in her eyes. And she was clearly absolutely traumatized. And all she could say is like, if you want information, why don't you go out there and see for yourself? Um, as in, you know, I don't want to talk about this. Yeah. And then he eventually tracks down Jenny, the quarter giant man. And Jenny was one of the offspring, one of the descendants of one of these poor individuals who supposedly gets taken. And the story was that his grandmother was like that story I just mentioned, got kidnapped, managed to escape. And when she escaped, she was pregnant. She gave birth to um, this half caste who eventually lived like maybe 40, 50 years and then passed away. Um, But his offspring was this giant named Jenny. Uh, as in G E double N Y, this huge man, and he goes to f- track him down. He like takes Joseph and he finds the village where this guy lives, and he eventually organizes an interview. And the chief actually sits him down and says, "Look, uh, don't be shocked when you see him because it's quite confronting." And other people in the tribe will come up to him. And we're like, "Yeah, just uh, you know, when you first see him, don't freak out." So this is like built up of finding this guy. And eventually he it's at night. He walks up to this guy's hut with Joseph and he sees this guy sitting on the porch under this kerosene lamp and he's ginormous. Like he's easily over seven feet tall. He's over 400 pounds. He says this guy's thigh is as big as Marius's waist. Wow. Um, he's And he says when he got close and, and could see his eyes, he says his eyes are red. As in, so not luminous. The pupils are red. Is that even possible? <laughs> Again, there's so many elements of these, this story where you're like, mm. Yeah, I, mean, I don't think that's possible. <laughs> like, I can believe in flying squadrons of floating reptilian men. But that's your limit? But a red-eyed man. Please. Um, this guy, there's all these stories about this guy. So in the village, all the pigs started to go missing. And it was always at church. And this guy, this Jenny guy always had an excuse. He's like, oh, can't go to church. Need uh, personal business. <laughs> He's eating pigs. And then me. there'd be a pig missing. And they eventually discovered he was eating all the pigs. Uh, there's this cool story about how one day he just leapt into a local river and he just comes out with a crocodile, like a huge crocodile. And everyone was like terrified. And he's carrying this crocodile, like like in King Kong, rips its face open. He just walks over to this open fire and throws it on the fire in front of all these women. They're like, ah, they run away. They watch as he cooks the crocodile and then eats every last bit of it. <laughs> <laughs> and the whole tribe is like, holy crap. That has to be a legend, obviously. No, but he's like a quarter giant. How could he not eat a crocodile? He's seven foot tall. He can eat like 10 pigs a day. Um, so there's all sorts of stories like that. Um, and then he describes being kidnapped by the Australian Federal Police in 1999. So when we come back after the break for our plus extension, we're going to blow this thing wide open as we discover just how deep this story goes into madness. We've got conspiracies that include the Australian government, 
Why would the AFP abduct him? The federal police, because he got involved in uh, mining uh, and there was oil discovered in the Solomon Islands. Okay. And uh, George Bush is involved. Um, John Howard, the former Australian Prime Minister, was pulling some strings. The AFP kidnapped him. He was getting phone calls with weird metallic voices in the middle of the night. Really? There's all sorts of weird stuff. And just to give you a sense of where this goes, I found uh, another interview from this Warren, this Australian researcher who went there in 2011 and found this local man who had a sighting of something strange. Let's take a listen. We have met this man here. Uh, His name is Stephen Mara Fuliabo. And Stephen was just telling us uh, some stories about how he and others have seen in the last few weeks something that he calls a rocket. And they said this plane has no engine. It's it's, it's like a water run. Yeah, and you can just hear like water. Yeah, water. Okay. He did this drawing uh, just earlier. So it's some kind of a very narrow triangular shape with a wing on each side um, and fire coming from here and something that he describes as a small place for driving. So the sketch there for those on the audio, it, it looks like some kind of American military aircraft. It looks like a stealth bomber. Yeah. Or a cross-section of a stealth bomber. Some kind of experimental fixed-wing craft mm. that this guy has drawn with a little cockpit bubble and fire coming out of the back of it. You know what? If you were going... I mean, aside from not having the right runway, if you're going to test experimental aircraft, the Solomon Islands is a good place to do it. Well, when we come back after the break, we're going to detail some of the local sightings of mysterious military figures that were showing up. I found old forum posts, which have been removed, that I found on the Wayback Machine, oh, great. where locals are discussing questions like, who are these military guys that keep coming out of the jungle? Who are these guys? They're not Americans. They're not Australians. Who are these guys? Who are they connected to? Ooh, later, this sounds like it's going to dovetail very nicely. Later, people claim they're seeing uh, Apache helicopters flying around. There's all these reports of black helicopters being seen on the islands. And really? in the foreign posts, I found people are saying, oh, that's Australian uh, forces, but I don't think Australian uh, we forces don't have, have Apaches. I don't think we have Apache helicopters. They're attack helicopters. The only reference I found was we were considering buying some from the Americans back in 2020, but this all happened in 2003. I'm seeing reports from 2011. Well, we have Seahawks, we have Blackhawks, but I, and we have smaller helicopters, but I don't think we have Apaches. So, and the AFP definitely doesn't have Apaches. Where this goes, uh, it'll blow your mind or you'll be so disgusted at its absurdity, you will throw it in the trash. Guaranteed. (laughs) Exclusive to Plus. I'm definitely in. Exclusive to Plus. Head to mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus for all the details. Sign up today and get access to the big extensions we do on these shows every single Friday. And of course, Plus. Keep doing this. It's all right. Keep flubbing my sales line. (laughs) It's the pressure, Ben. Sign up for Plus. I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to change it to Plus. I'm just going to change it to the Plus membership. (laughs) <laughs> what, you squeeze out every bit of the story? Is that what we're talking about? I actually about? do have a Plus story coming up. Oh, that. gross. Sign up for Plus and get access to the big extensions we do. And, of course, the Plus episodes exclusive to members that come out every single Tuesday as well. Plus members are also getting an entirely ad-free version of the show. 
Uh, you get access to our entire back catalogue as well if you're on MU Max, going back 16 plus years of shows. Uh, and of course, you get uh, total. Did I mention an ad free version of the yes, show? Yes, you did. Yeah. You also get a higher uh, MP3 version of the show for our audio and access to all our video as well, the full video shows all on the website for our Plus members. Can I just do a PSA? I've had a couple of support emails coming through of people you know, coming back after a while and uh, they still think that there's an app. There's, there's no app anymore. No, dude, no one's thinking. They that. are. There's no app anymore. If you've come back, just make sure you go through and uh, click on your dashboard. The links are in there. That's all you need. If you need any help, do email us, support at mysteriousuniverse.org, but it's there's no more app. So People are seriously asking yes. about an app? Yeah. It's cool. Like, it's fine. But no, no, it's no, not no. cool. You can, you can use any can you app ban you want those people? I don't want their money. <laughs> fine, I'll go and do it right now. <laughs> Bring him up. Where's Zendesk? Mysteriousuniverse.org forward slash plus. Sign up today. Help support your favorite show. That's a, that's a wrap for this free edition of Mysterious Universe. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. You're banned, Eric. <laughs> if you're a plus... Stick around for the great stuff after the break for everyone else, including Eric. We'll see you next week. Welcome back to your Plus Extension. Great to have you with us.